Welcome to Trauma-Informed Parenting, where you can find information about adoption, foster care, parenting a child with a capital letter syndrome, such as ADD, ADHD, FASD, SPD, on the spectrum, etc., and trauma-informed parenting, all in one place. I'm Kathleen Guire, your host, mother of seven, four through adoption, former National Parent of the Year, author, teacher, and speaker, but more important than any of those things, I'm a parent just like you. I know what it's like to raise kiddos with trauma histories and capital letter syndromes. I used to feel as if I were the only one struggling, and because I felt that way, I isolated myself. I don't want you to feel alone in your parenting journey. So grab a cup of coffee and join me for Trauma-Informed Parenting, a Coffee Break Podcast. Hi, Kathleen Guire here. Welcome to this episode of Trauma-Informed Parenting. I have a returning guest, Renee Mill, and if you missed her, you need to go back into the backlist and listen to her talk about anxiety in children. But if this is your first time hearing Renee speak, I am going to ask her to share a little bit about herself. Hello, Renee. Hi. How are you, Kathy? I'm doing well. Could you just share a little bit about your background? And obviously, people are going to know you are not from the United States because of your beautiful accent. Just share a little bit about yourself. (laughs) Well, let's start with that. I'm originally from South Africa, but I now live in Sydney, Australia. So it's early in the morning here on a Friday morning. Um, I was originally an occupational therapist. I'm also now a clinical psychologist and a neuropsychotherapist. And I've always been interested in emotion regulation and the brain, really. So I... um, I've done, it seems like lots of different things. I've been in practice since 1982 in my own private practice, first in Johannesburg and now in Sydney. Um, and I have developed various courses and systems to help people rewire their brain, retrain their brain. And that helps with things like stress, anxiety, anger, um, emotional intelligence in the workplace. The underpinning is all about how to remaster skills, <clears throat> how to take charge of your emotions. Obviously, that doesn't mean invalidating your emotions, but finding a way um, through where we can be our best selves. That's a great intro- introduction, and you have done a lot with your life, um, and I'm so glad that you're willing to share with us today. Today, Renee is going to be talking about parenting neurodiverse children. So if you're in the audience and you're like, this is me, I am parenting neurodiverse children and often I do not understand them. Before we started recording, Renee and I were talking about that. Often it's hard to understand and put yourself in their shoes. So that's what she's going to talk about. So tell us a little bit about your journey to this topic of parenting neurodiverse children. Well, when I was studying to become an occupational therapist in the 1970s, um, they had a very different term. It's actually embarrassing now when I look at some of those terms because Mm. they're so not correct. But the original term for kids with learning problems was minimal brain dysfunction. I don't know if you remember that, Mm. Uh, MBD. 
And we were treating kids with, we called it dyslexia, um, but we didn't, there wasn't a term ADD in those days, it was MBD, and it was seen as something wrong with the brain, which in a way was not incorrect, but it was seen to be as a dysfunction. So we've come a long way since the 1970s, but I've been working, um, I don't work with kids per se anymore, now I work with parents, but in those days I did, we would do different skills with those kind of children, and was also before computers so in occupational therapy we used activities which were fantastic and I still um, believe in that you know different activities to help use lots of what we then became what was called multiple intelligences in the early 19 mm. in like 1983 Gardner spoke about multiple intelligences yeah. so there's been different terminology but I've always been interested in that but having said that, I'm very today what we'd call neurotypical. I think a very vertical way. I love lists. I can plan really well. And, of course, I married someone who is very neurodiverse. I won't give him a label. And some of my children are. And it's very confronting because you have a system that works. And see, I even use the word system. I have systems, <laughs> little tips and tricks. Today they call them hacks. Um, and, you know, you want to teach your husband, <laughs> your children, you know, I've got a really good way of doing it and they just don't see it that way or they can't implement it. So it can be very, very frustrating, especially when you think it's the right way. So there are two aspects. The one is not to see it as a pathology. It's very exciting now that we talk about neurodiversity and being neurotypical and both, both of them are part of the same range I don't want to use the word spectrum, but a range of how people think and do things. And as a clinician and a parent, it's really important not to superimpose your way, but to really try and understand how to help the people in your life or your patients to find solutions that work for them. And it's not that they their way of doing it is wrong. Our system actually fits only some of us. How do we help people fit into a system in a way that doesn't compromise who they are as individuals? Yes, I think that's really important because, you know, the traditional parenting mindset used to be, you know, my way or the highway with your kids. It's like you have to do it this way because this is the way I do it. And that really backfires when you're parenting a child who doesn't see through the same lens or think the same way that you think. So why is this topic, obviously you've already gotten into this a little bit, but I'm just going with my questions here. Why is this topic relevant for parents? Well, what I also wanted the opportunity to share is that as a clinical psychologist, you know, people talk to you about some of their deepest thoughts and feelings and some of those people have feelings that they're ashamed of. And one of the things that pe parents might not often tell anybody else is that they really often don't like their children or are struggling with these kids who are so different to them. And one of my favorite books is called Far From the Tree um, by Andrew Solomon, who looks at parents of children who are very, very different. It's really a worthwhile reader, but he looks at parents hearing parents of children who are deaf or normal-hearted parents of children who are dwarfs and parents of mass murderers, all kinds of different children. How do you be a parent of someone who's so different to you? So I've often had, 
one classic parent comment that stayed with me, one dad once said to me, if my daughter was a puppy, I'd give her back. Mm. And I thought, yeah, I get that, that he's being honest about, I just don't know what to do with her. And as parents, we need to be honest about those feelings, not to everybody, but we need to work with those feelings so that we don't hold in a resentment or dislike for our children. We have to find a way of coming to terms with who they are and learning to value them, and that can be quite a long journey. Right, I agree. And so it's a delicate balance between being a, a loving and committed parent but finding a space where you can actually allow yourself to work through those, I'll put it in inverted commas, sort of what parents call ugly feelings. Right. And I, I struggled with that myself because after, you know, we adopted a sibling group before, anytime I would say just, you know, something to my friends like, you know, I'm really wiped, I'm really tired, it's been a lot of appointments, a lot of things with the kids and stuff, and immediately I'd get shut down like, well, you adopted them. You know, and I don't think that that is a healthy way to deal with it because I went into what I call my silent years where for years I didn't share with any of my friends or my pastor or anybody what was going on at home. Not that something terrible was going on at home, but I had those feelings. I needed some help. I needed some emotional support, but I didn't feel like I could share or say anything. So I think it's very important that you make that point. That's a really good point. So if listeners, if you're out there and you're like, I am in the silent years, find somebody you can talk to, find a counselor or a therapist. And like Renee said, it doesn't mean you need to get a pulpit out and share it with everybody. Just find somebody you can share with. And it's also, you know, sometimes we think it's black or white. Like if I love my kids then I've got to love them all the time or I've Mm. got to get right all the time. And we can actually have both feelings at the same time. Someone once said to me, you know, and I thought it was a sweet metaphor, you've got two sides of your heart, a left side and a right side, because you can actually be happy and sad at the same time. You can Mm -hmm. be, you know, struggling um, to like your child but love them at the same time. And... That's important to know that sometimes you can have both at the same time. It's not even ambivalence, which is which one. It's going, I actually don't like this behavior. I'm struggling. You know, so if we use a a silly little example, that if you have a child who is very messy and you're very tidy and you're like living in the mess, you might really not like it, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't mean you don't love your child and they both exist at exactly the same time. I'm really not enjoying this. Or the kind of child that we get on with well and you can just be in the flow and have conversations. And then you've got another child that just doesn't get you and you don't really get them and conversation is exhausting. Mm -hmm. And you're not really enjoying it. You're happy to do it, but you're not really enjoying it at the same time. Yeah, and I think a great example of that is like if you have like, I'm just going to use a personal example, I had a child who was just very much into Minecraft and he would love to sit there. (laughs) He wanted me to sit there and just tell me all of the worlds that he had created and show me. And so, yeah, it's like, okay, I'm going to do that because I love him, but I don't really enjoy watching 
the screen and listening to these explanations. And I think that, you know, as a, a literary example, Charles Dickens said it the best. He said, you know, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. You can <laughs> have them the both at the same, you can have them at, at the same time. Yes, that's true. So what are three things you think parents need to know about parenting neurodiverse children? Well, again, if you're thinking about black and white thinking, not to feel that you're a bad parent if there are days that you're really struggling and you don't have all the answers or you're not enjoying parenting or you're overwhelmed. I actually saw somebody yesterday and her opening comment to me was, you know, I'm just a complete failure. Mm. And she actually has planning difficulties and she has a few children. And because her home isn't running very smoothly, you know, she's what we call pervasive pessimistic thinking, just thinks as a mom she's a total failure. Mm. So you, again, you can be struggling with certain aspects, but don't say, see it in a general way that I'm a bad parent. It's more about going, you know, um, a loving parent or a focus on the things that you are doing, but know that the areas that you need to work on, but it's not a general, as I say, pervasive pessimistic thinking. So, and you will be overwhelmed and you will struggle because these children are trying to fit into a system. And if you aren't, don't have the same kind of brain and it doesn't wire the same way, there will be lots of struggles. And that comes really with the territory. The second thing that I really encourage parents, which just taps into what I was saying a few minutes ago, that it's actually normal to find it difficult to understand children who think or act differently to you. You, just because they're your children, they're not clones of you. Mm -hmm. And I actually feel that our kids really force us to grow and come out of our comfort zone because we love, because we love our kids and we suddenly have to understand who they are and what makes them tick. It forces us and we need to be flexible. We need to be open to change. We need to be open to different ways of doing things. So, for example, um, one of my kids, she always tells me that she's married with children herself now, but she is not good with lists and she's not good with planning. And if she has people over... She does everything at the last minute. And, you know, it's my job to really enjoy that for her and let her do it her way. I mean, she's a grown woman. Mm -hmm. And not to be the kind of mom of an adult daughter that's, you know, that's not the way you do it and there's always a lot of stress before you do it. She likes it. She actually, and she's told me that there's a whole world of people who actually like doing it at the last minute. That's when their adrenaline gets going and and it's difficult for us to understand that. So it's really important to know that it can be difficult, but it doesn't mean it's a reflection on the relationship, but to rather see it as an opportunity to grow. And the other thing parents need to know, which I think is fantastic and wasn't there in the 1970s, is how much information there is. So I'll also share a personal example that I don't do a lot of reading about neurodiversity and studying. And again, as I say, from those early MBD days. Today we know, for example, that kids with ADHD are not necessarily unable to focus. They often, there's a whole different way of looking at it now, that they focus 
for example, when there's a challenge or when they're interested or when there's a deadline. Mm -hmm. So once you understand that, instead of, again, with pervasive thinking that they can't focus, you can think about, if you're a parent, how do you set a challenge or how do you set a deadline or how do you work with that brain in a way that they will be able to focus and achieve. So there's a lot of information out there and it's changing all the time it's growing all the time, and to know that we live in a resource-rich world, like you, Kathy, you offer mm. a fabulous podcast, and that parents should really seek out information and find the help that they need. Well, and I think one of the great things about the information sources out there are we are leaning into more what is positive about this particular child. What, you know, you were saying with kiddos with ADHD, we find that maybe they can really focus on building a Lego kit for an hour, and but maybe they can't focus on three math problems in a row. So finding those strengths and finding out what really works for them, whether it's movement and seeing them as strengths and sharing with them, you are really good at this particular thing. And like um, Charles Duhigg says in The Power of Habit, like you start habit stacking. Well, if you're really good at Legos, then let's use the Legos to do some math problems. Let's, let's use these together. And I like that because I think that, like you were talking about years ago, any child that was not neurotypical got a label slapped on them that was negative. And it's like, how do we fix this child? And it's not like that anymore. And I hope that parents are, you know, we're always telling the kids they need to be flexible. They need to be able to change. Well, we parents need to be flexible and we need to learn this information. And does it take work? Yes, it does. In fact, I was, I'm just going to share a little complaining I did the other day. I was <laughs> complaining to my husband about something and I was like, you know, I, I read a lot, I do a lot of research, and then when I run into a parent who needs some help, they might come to me when their house is on fire, so to speak, and want me to pour into them all, all the work I've done. Not that I mind that, because I love researching. And I just said, well, why don't they just look things up themselves? And... I'm, because they have a different brain to you, maybe. Right, right. So we need to be flexible, too, and maybe understand, that, well, maybe... Right. This is the point, yeah. Right, so maybe and if we they... do it that way, but it's working with people who, who don't necessarily do it that way. Right, or they can't organize their thoughts that much, or maybe mm. they can't read a book to the point where they absorb all the okay. information. So, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, um, I'm just... I want to also talk in a bigger way, because... One of the things that I feel, um, and again today there's a lot of information around it, is we also have to work hard at looking at the world in a different way. Mm. So, you know, Gabor Mate is on a, he's been on a speaking um, tour the last few months and he's all over YouTube. And I really recommend people listen to him because he's bringing a message, which it's not really a new message, um, but often we need to be reminded of this message. So his latest book, um, you know, is The Myth of Normal. And he talks so much about, you know, we're living in a world where it's all about competition and status and making money and pleasing. 
And really, we need to be authentic, but we also need to rethink the system. So what are we doing to our children when we want them to fit into the system? You know, they do right. need to fit in, we all need to fit in to some degree, but we often have to rethink how we see relationships, how what we think is important, and how to actually see our children who are not like us or who are struggling in a worthy way. So when he talks about attachment, you know, he's reminding something we used to do infant observations as long ago as the seventies. You know, children when they're born, we just love them. We don't think, you know, are they clever, are they rich, are they thin, are they you know, scientists. We just love them for themselves. We just love we're all excited when we see a baby and there's no judgment. And then suddenly judgment comes along and then society pushes it along and Sometimes we actually have to reevaluate what success looks like for, and it's not in a resignation or second-class way. His message is a very important message of we're getting it wrong, the pressure we're putting our children under to meet these standards. And it's not making a happier society. It's not making people less anxious or depressed. In fact, on the contrary, and I think if we start on a grassroots level and in each family we go back to basics, that relationships, and life should be about love and attachment and being there for each other. And making money and success and all of that should be secondary. If you can do it, that's fine. But it's really, really important to get back to basics because often what we're struggling with is fitting our child into a system or trying to make them successful and that's interfering with our relationship with them and getting back to basics I think is a very important thing. I agree 100% you are preaching the same message that I preach and he is preaching the same message and I have found like I'll just share a little bit of a story like when I was homeschooling my kids and our homeschool co-op, which I helped start, was getting really super academic to the point where kids in high school were feeling if they weren't going to college and they weren't getting these test scores and they weren't, they were beginning to feel like they were less than. And I say to parents all the time, you know what, it is, it is, your child does not have to go to college if that is not part of their makeup. If they are not strong in academics and there is something else they want to do, like become a welder or a plumber or or something else, an artist or a concert promoter. There are so many other things out there that we, like you said, we put a level of judgment on like if you are these things then you haven't been successful and the truth is if you want your kids to be successful then you want them to be doing something that fits their personality that they're good at and that they enjoy regardless of what sort of salary they're going to make now obviously we don't want our kids to starve I'm not talking about that but there are so many other things that kids can do. And like you said, yes, there are many, many children who excel in academics and they go to college and they get doctorates and we need that. But there are other things in life besides pursuing academics. And I know that my kids really felt less than their peers for a while during those high school years because some of them didn't want to pursue that. They had other interests. 
And I don't know when... And it's very difficult for parents. So when yes. you go to, um, I don't know how it works in America, but, you know, um, if you have prize givings and that is the child that never earns a prize and, you know, struggling to get through and isn't going to go to college when everyone else is going, it's not easy. Right. It's, you know, it's a big ask as a parent to adapt the way we see things or to really be okay with the fact that, our child isn't getting the awards or will never be that PhD student. And this is the kind of work that parents need to do to truly fundamentally shift so that that child can feel valued for who they are. And that's the biggest gift you can give your child, to really value them, not for what they do, but really value them in their uniqueness. Right. And I agree. And like you were saying a little bit ago about attachment, you know, attachment actually grows the brain but attachment isn't sitting there measuring you know what did you accomplish today and I don't know how our society got on that track but it's enjoying each other's company talking to each other spending time with each other doing things together and that is what builds that foundation in the family that your kids can carry into their future to make them feel secure and it's not a piece of paper that says you want a scholarship. Yeah, that might give you make you feel great, and but not every kid's going to get that. Like you said, they don't all. They're not all thinking that way. That's right. When I used to, I haven't done it actually since COVID. But when I used to run parenting courses, one of my topics was self esteem, and that always brought a lot of parents. But they, I always said that I used to trick parents because the topic wasn't about children's self-esteem. It was about talking to parents about their self-esteem. Because in order to do what I'm suggesting, we really have to learn to be okay with ourselves. Because very often our children are, we see them as extension of ourselves. We might not even be aware that we're doing that. And so we need them to do well so that we feel good about ourselves, either as a parent or as a person in society, you know, we can feel really good if we've got that child that's doing the PhD. And when our children are not doing that, because we're not okay with ourselves, we get very angry with them. And there are one or two ways that this can happen. The one is that if we, so often I've dealt with parents who struggled at school and they are determined that their children won't. Mm. And every time a child of theirs is struggling, they see it as holding a mirror up to themselves and they get furious with that child because it's something that they've never resolved in themselves. Or the other way is that, as I said, that they need their child to succeed in order for them to feel good. So these are areas that we have to work on our own self-esteem as parents, that even if our child is not the one getting the award, we're actually okay with that, truly okay with that. Because even if we say the right words to our children, but we're not okay with that, that's our self-esteem issue. And we, the child will feel that, and we will feel very unhappy with our children and our lives because we're not okay with them expressing themselves in their unique way. Right, I agree. And, you know, because you have adult children, when you run into friends that you haven't seen for years, the first thing they ask is, you know, what are your kids doing? And if that you, is so true. And if you list off, well, she has a doctorate, she has, you know, she's doing this, 
you know, then you walk away feeling like, okay, you know, I won, I'm doing it, you know. But then to see the expression on their face, if you say, well, you know what, my daughter's a stay-at-home mom right now, she's homeschooling her kids, and she's really enjoying it, then they just look at you like you have three heads, like, no, that doesn't fit. That doesn't fit the paradigm that we have for what your kids should be doing right now. Yeah. So finishing up. It's interesting that that's the first question, isn't it? It is. It always is. What are your kids doing? And it takes me um, 20 minutes because I have seven children. (laughs) Like, are you ready for this? (laughs) So if you had one piece of advice for parents regarding parenting neurodiverse children, what would that be? Um, one piece of advice. I think it's what I was just saying, you know, is to actually work on yourself, hmm. um, to, be, to feel whole, to not let your child define you. So it's, you, can, you focus on the attachment and the love and the care and being in the relationship, but actually really understanding that your child is their own person, they've got their own journey, and their choices don't define you. And you can't separate out. You can't be a parent without actually working on yourself. So really to do the work on yourself, to cope with your child's difference, to, as we were saying, learn different strategies, but actually be okay with who they are. That's good advice. So anything additional you'd like to share? I just want to really say to all parents who, all parents really, but that it is tough to be a parent, but again, not in a way that poor thing or victim, but to really go for all these reasons that we challenge in ways that you don't get challenged because our children are part of us, but they're not clones of us. They are part of us, but they don't have to prove themselves so we feel good. It's a very delicate balancing act. And to really, at the end of the day, it's okay to just go, you know what, I did well. Not because they did well or because I'm ticking boxes, but just the fact that I'm showing up every day in my best loving self. That's what we have to look at. And, you know, well done to all parents to putting in the effort. Even listening to the podcast today, well done. Right, right. Taking the time to listen and educate yourself is really important. So where can people find you and what resources do you have to offer? Well, I think the easiest is to go to my website, which is anxietysolutionscbt.com. And I have a few books. I have two parenting books. I have an anxiety self-help book, anxiety-free, drug-free, lots of posts and podcasts that they can listen to. And, of course, people can always email me. All that information is on my website. Well, thank you, Renee, for being on the podcast again. Thank you, Cassie, for inviting me. You're welcome. And I will see you next week, people. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Trauma-Informed Parenting. Make sure you subscribe on traumainformedparenting.com to receive a free resource and receive a newsletter plus updates when books or new courses are released. Also, please subscribe 
to the podcast on iTunes, Podomatic, or Spotify and leave a review so other listeners can find trauma-informed parenting and know the value of the show. You're welcome to send me an email to contact at traumainformedparenting.com.